Hi, this is Mercedes, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi there, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and I am so grateful and humbly thankful to be with you today. Thanks for taking time to join me. It is Sunday, June 12th. Today is part two in our new sermon series titled The Countercultural Christian. Last week I said that being a countercultural Christian is a strong biblical theme. Jesus told his followers in John 15, 19, you are no longer part of the world. And Paul told the Romans, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. I also said that it's quite another thing to figure out just what being countercultural means. And how do we decide what we are going to be counter to? Well, in part one, I addressed the issue of wisdom, and we found that wisdom without God is meaningless. Today, we're going to answer the question, what does pleasure accomplish? And we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11 for those answers. But before we get there, let's take a minute and have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you praise, honor, and glory for your excellent goodness Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from you today. Teach us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Get those Bibles or Bible apps out and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and follow along as I read. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine, and while seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was really nothing worthwhile anywhere. It was the 4th of July weekend, and the family had gathered for a big meal together. In the kitchen was four-year-old little Johnny, And there on the edge of the cabinet sat the one thing he loved so much. It was a big, round, juicy watermelon. He just couldn't stop staring at it. But everyone told him to leave it alone and that mom and dad would cut it up later. They said it would be too hard for him to lift. And if he tried, he would most likely drop it and it might split open on the floor. Sure that little Johnny understood the warning, everybody went on about their business. That is, until there was a loud thump. And there it was. The watermelon on the floor cracked right down the middle. Everyone turned and saw what had happened. 
you could sense the various feelings among the adults, disappointment, frustration, surprise, and anger. But before anyone could do or say anything, the four-year-old looked up and said, Well, I never saw that coming. <laughs> now, why did that little boy do what he did? He did what he did because he wanted that watermelon and he wanted it now. He couldn't understand why he couldn't have the one thing he wanted so much. For Johnny, that watermelon represented pleasure, but when he attempted to take hold of that pleasure, everything fell apart. And that's what Solomon is telling us here in Ecclesiastes. He's telling us that he sought to take hold of pleasure in his life, but when he did, everything fell apart. Look at verse 2 of our text. Solomon says, what good does it do to seek pleasure? And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And then Solomon goes through a whole list of things that he'd done to find pleasure. He tried to find pleasure in the accomplishments like building houses and planting vineyards. He made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees, and he made reservoirs to water all the trees. And he found that none of those accomplishments brought him pleasure. He also tried to find pleasure in his possessions, the things that he had or that he owned or that he just took. He had slaves, he owned herds and flocks, and he hoarded silver and gold and all kinds of treasure. But none of those things, none of those possessions brought him pleasure. In verses 3 and 8, he even tried wine, women, and song, but those didn't work. At the end of experimenting with all those pleasurable pursuits, it's almost as if Solomon sighed and said, everything is meaningless. I'm just chasing after the wind. Nothing is gained. Now, it helps to know that these were not just random thoughts by Solomon. He actually had a purpose in telling us about the failure of pleasure to please. But before we get into examining exactly what Solomon is trying to get at here, we need to begin with one basic biblical truth, and that truth is this. There is nothing wrong with pleasure. I'll say that again to you. There is nothing wrong with pleasure. God designed us to have pleasure in this world. In fact, when God created Adam and Eve, he prepared a special place for them to live. What was the name of that special place that God had prepared for them? That's right, the Garden of Eden. Do you know what the word Eden means? Eden means pleasure. When God created Adam and Eve, he created a place for them to have pleasure. In Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8, David wrote this praise of God. How precious is your unfailing love, O God! All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You feed them from the abundance of your own house, letting them drink from your river of delights. Think about that. God loves us so much, and he wants to satisfy us. And he wants to let us drink from his river of delights. So there's nothing wrong with wanting pleasure in our lives. In fact, in Psalm 16, verse 11, David praises God with these words. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. So God clearly wants to give us pleasure. But what exactly is pleasure? I searched several resources and I found that pleasure can be defined as satisfaction, enjoyment, delight, happiness, joy, and contentment. The problem for many Christians is that we look in all the wrong places for that pleasure. As Christians, we live in the world, so there are times that we think like those in the world. 
In other words, we've been so surrounded by an ungodly world for so long, we tend to think like ungodly people. Another word for ungodly is pagan. So the Bible gets right to the heart of things. It gives you the secret of joy, contentment, and pleasure. And it gives you the key to satisfaction and happiness in this world. You want to know what that key is? Do you want to know what the key is for pleasure and happiness? Do you want to know what the secret is for joy and contentment? Well, Paul tells us he clearly discovered it. We talked about this in our midweek Bible study just two weeks ago. First, he wrote in Philippians 4, verses 11b and 12, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. So Paul says he's learned the secret to being content. You want to know what that secret is? Well, here it is. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Or as the contemporary English version says, Always be glad because of the Lord. I will say it again. Be glad. Well, that's it? That's all there is? That's the secret to being content in every situation? It can't possibly be that simple. Hmm. Did you notice that Paul repeats himself in verse 4? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, here it is, rejoice. So why is Paul repeating himself? Well, he's repeating himself for the same reason parents repeat themselves with their kids. Have you noticed parents do that? They say things like, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. But why do parents repeat themselves? Because the kids aren't paying attention. Hello. The kids don't think what their parents are saying is important. And so the parents repeat themselves to emphasize that it is important. And that's why Paul repeats himself here in Philippians 4. What he's saying just seems too easy. It seems too simple. You couldn't possibly gain happiness by just rejoicing, could you? And because it seems so easy and simple, a lot of folks overlook it. I read an article by an atheist who made an interesting observation. She said, over the years, I've come to think I'm missing out. My friends and relatives who rely on God, the real believers, not just the churchgoers, have an expansiveness of spirit. When they walk along a stream, they don't just see the water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a babbling brook. I don't get the message. What the atheist was seeing in those real believers was a spirit of rejoicing, a spirit of being glad. The real believers had seen something she did not. And that is one of the real problems for folks that aren't content. They just don't see what we see. There was a real wealthy man. He stopped by a travel agency one day and he wanted to go on a cruise. So the agent said, where to? He replied, I don't know. Realizing this man was extremely wealthy, the travel agent suggested that he take a look at a large globe that was in the room. The agent then said, if you can find a place that interests you on that globe, I can get you a cruise there. So the man went over to the globe and studied it for some time. After a while, he looked up in frustration and exclaimed, is this all you have to offer? Unhappy people are often unhappy because they're never satisfied with what they have. They could have the whole world at their fingertips and they'd still not be content. And that's because they've never learned to rejoice and be glad in what they have. Biblically, rejoicing is not so much an emotion. It's a conscious decision to be happy with what you have. Those who don't consciously decide to rejoice will never be happy no matter what they have. If I gave a person a tablet of paper and asked them to write down the things that disappoint them in life, 
that frustrate them about their life or the things they wish they had but didn't, they could fill up an entire tablet and maybe ask for another. But if I gave them a single piece of paper and asked them to write down the things they were thankful for, I'll bet they'd struggle to write down even 10 things. Why? Because they're not used to being thankful for what they have. Hello? Why should they be thankful for their hands? They've always had two. Why should they be thankful for being able to see? They've always been able to do that. Why should they be thankful for being able to walk or talk or sing or dance? They've always been able to do those things. But they can't reach those other things, those things of life that disappoint and frustrate them because they don't have them. And that's what makes them unhappy. They focus on what they don't have rather than what they do have. That's part of the reason that Solomon was so frustrated. He was a man of great means and could have anything he wanted. And yet all of his accomplishments, all of his possessions, all of the entertainment in his life could not give him pleasure because he didn't learn to be satisfied and happy with what he had. But there's one more aspect of this frustration on Solomon's part with pleasure. One more thing Solomon wants us to see that's missing in people's lives. Remember a little while ago I shared with you that the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Do you remember what I said was the secret? Of course, he said the secret, according to verse 4, was rejoice. Ah, yes. But rejoice in what? Simple. Rejoice in the Lord. You see, in all of his discussion about seeking pleasure, Solomon never mentioned God, not even once. And I believe he did that on purpose. Because at the very end of Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, he says this. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So basically Solomon is saying that the reason everything else seems so empty and worthless and boring in your life is because you haven't included God in the picture. If God is not at the center of your joy, the center of your gladness, then your life is going to be empty, plain and simple. Kaufman Kohler, a scholar who writes in the Jewish Encyclopedia, says that no language has as many words for joy and rejoicing as Hebrew does. In the Old Testament, there are 27 different words used primarily for some aspect of joy or joyful participation in religious worship. He says that in contrast to the rituals of other faiths of the East, Israelite worship was essentially a joyous proclamation and celebration. The good Israelite regarded the act of thanking God as a supreme joy in his or her life. Pure joy is joy in God as both its source and object. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasure of living with you forever. So where is the joy? In his presence. Where are the eternal pleasures? Living with him forever. You know, just a few minutes ago, we read in Philippians 4, 11 and 12 that Paul had found the secret to contentment. And we found that the secret was in verse four, rejoicing in the Lord always. Now, that phrase is actually the opening statement for Paul in the discussion of how a Christian should rejoice. But there's one more verse that reveals what was truly the secret of Paul's contentment. 
Let's read Philippians 4, verse 12 again, but this time we're going to add verse 13 to the mix. Paul says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Now wait for it. Verse 13, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that it is Jesus who gives him the contentment. It is Jesus who gives him his joy and pleasure in life. That's because without Jesus, there is no lasting contentment. But Paul realized he could do everything through Christ who gave him strength. Chuck Swindoll, commenting on Ecclesiastes, noted the fact that Solomon went through a whole litany of things that should have given his life purpose but didn't. In the end, Solomon repeats over and over again, it's all emptiness and worthless. Then Swindoll wrote, If there is nothing but nothing under the sun, only our hope must be above it. True that. Folks, our true hope for meaning in this world lies above this world, not in it. Let's wrap this up. It was nighttime and a huge fireworks display lit up the sky. A man told of noticing a small boy, about three years old, perched on his father's shoulders. The child sat mesmerized, aware only of what was exploding in the heavens. When the fireworks were over, the little boy looked up into the sky again and said, Thank you, God. Of course, we realized that God didn't shoot off those fireworks, but this small child had learned the value of thanking God, even for the works of men, and it was in that thankfulness that he showed the beauty of a grateful heart. That was why he was so filled with wonder and joy as he watched the fireworks display. That little boy put God at the center of his joy. And that's what we need to do, beloved. If we truly want pleasure in our lives, we need to put God at the center of our joy. It's clearly countercultural. But you can't have pleasure in your life until you have Jesus. And it is my hope and prayer today that you will open your heart right now, surrender your life to him, confess your sin to him, and then be baptized into Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38, 39, and following. Thanks for taking time to listen today. Hope this has been an encouragement to you. It is the word of God. We are countercultural as Christians, and we can experience pleasure. Let us rejoice together in all that God has done and continues to do. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.